This is Brett. And this is Sean. And, and this, this is, is bonus, bonus BS. And I, we can't do that right at all. We should <laughs> put that in the show right there. All right, hold on. <laughs> yeah. Bonus BS, a supplemental show to Gaming and BS podcast, where we cover interviews and other such topics not found in our weekly episodes. Enjoy. The following recording takes place at GameholeCon 2016, a gaming convention held in Madison, Wisconsin in November. The recording features Monty Cook and Shauna Germain from Monty Cook Games, where they oversee the design, development, and production of popular games such as Numenera, The Strange, and No Thank You Evil. We want to extend a sincere thank you to Monty and Shauna for allowing us to bring this to you. We are uh, we're really excited to be here at Game Hall Con. This is our first Game Hall Con. And uh, so today we, we just kind of wanted to talk generally about some of the stuff that uh, we're doing. And uh, that's going to be a pretty brief thing, though, because what, I really, what we really want to do is open things up to questions, find out what you guys want to talk about. Um, feel free to ask anything, even if it's not about Monty Cook Games, but just about stuff we, other stuff we've worked on or anything. You know, we're, we're here for you. Um, but first, we should probably tell you who we are. Um, so, Shauna? Uh, I'm Shauna Germain. I'm co-owner of Monty Cook Games. I've been a writer and editor for 20, uh, 27 years now. Um, and I am currently one of the uh, lead designers for the company. And I'm Monty Cook. Uh, I've uh, worked in uh, tabletop RPG design for just shy of 30 years now. Um, I, uh, I've worked on Dungeons and Dragons and Rollmaster and Champions and, uh, a lot of different things. I used to have a D20 company called Malhavik Press. I technically still do. Um, it's just not, not putting up very much stuff. Um, and now we have Monty Cook Games, which we started back in 2012, uh, with a Kickstarter for a game called Numenera. And we are uh, still producing uh, Numenera. Lots of exciting stuff coming up for Numenera. Uh, but since that time, we have also released a number of other games, and we have more exciting stuff coming in the future. Uh, so why don't we just start talking about some of the upcoming stuff that we've got, or the, maybe the stuff that uh, is, is coming out like right now, uh, probably starting with the Numenera starter set. Yeah. Speaking of Numenera. Um, Literally any day now, um, we are going to be releasing uh, a, a a box set for Numenera. It is uh, got a, a low price point. It's an introductory product. If you already play Numenera, this product is not for you. Do not buy it. <laughs> uh, this product is for you know your friend who's really interested in Numenera or, you know, your nephew or, or something uh, to give for, to them for Christmas or something like that. Uh, but it is uh, just a $25 set that will get someone started with Numenera, all the basic rules, uh, an adventure, you know, all the little bits and pieces that you need to, to, to play um, and, and get going uh, pretty quickly. And yeah. Uh, it there's there is nothing. If you already are a Numenera player, there's nothing new in this box. Uh, so there there there's nothing there's nothing for you. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. The hardest yeah. part will be telling people don't buy it. Right. <laughs> don't buy right. it. <laughs> this is this is for new players, and part of why we're doing this is because uh, early next year, uh, In Exile Studios is going to be uh, putting out. Uh, a video game, uh, Torment Tides of Numenera, which is going to introduce uh, lots and lots of new people to Numenera. We're very excited about this, and this is a great transition for them if they are uh, computer computer game players or console players, and they want to transition into our crazy world. Uh, this is a this is a great way to do it. Um, so uh, we're very excited about Torment. We're very excited about the the starter set. Uh, but what else do we have? 
Um, well, so, uh, you know, I was just making a list and I was like, wow, we, we're busy. Um, so since we're talking about Numenera, um, The Poison Eater is coming out in January, which is the first Numenera novel. Um, if you back the Kickstarter, you get a hardbound, exclusive, really beautifully interior illustrated um, book. And then Angry Robot uh, Books is also partnering with us to produce a, a paperback version that will be available in bookstores. And so those will both be out in January. Um, and we uh, also are doing... Um, a bunch of things that are not Numenera. So Monty said that, uh, we've, we've done other things. One of the things we've done is something called um, the Cypher System, which is sort of the engine behind Numenera that is uh, more sort of genre agnostic. You can kind of put any genre that you want into it. Um, and so we have some things coming out for that, including um, Expanded Worlds, which we're working on right now, which is a uh, uh, sort of an extension of different genres that you can put, like post-apocalyptic, or um, what are some of the other ones that we're doing? Um, um, I think steampunk. And Childhood Adventure, which yeah, is sort of inspired play, by Stranger Things, which right. is fun. We play kids. Basically, if you're familiar at all with the Cypher System rule book, um, there's a whole section in there that is chapters uh, that are just about the various genres. And this book is is like an extension of that part of the book with more genres. So it'll it'll talk about foci and, and descriptors and creatures and equipment and everything. Uh some of which will be brand new to that book, tied, you know, made specifically for those those genres. Uh, so we're working on that, and then along with the cipher system, we are also um, coming out with we're working on predation, which is a time travel dinosaur genre um, that will be out next year. We just play tested it last night here, and it was super fun. We had a great time. Um, it's an interesting one because you get to play a dinosaur companion uh, in addition to your own character. So you play someone else's dinosaur companion. And so we play tested those mechanics last night. Um, and I had a great time with my players, but it's very fun to, uh, to manage that. So that'll be out next year. Um, we also have uh, Into the Outside, which is another Numenera product, which follows the Into the Deep um, and Into the Night. Night. Sorry, it's been a while. Um, and this one sort of goes multidimensional, transdimensional, just sort of way out there, weirdness, um, kind of really. And Bruce uh, Cordell wrote the majority of that, and it is just fantastical and weird and kind of wonderful. So that uh, that's also in progress. Um, and then the other thing that we have coming out really soon, actually, is something called Story Please. If you guys play No Thank You Evil with your kids, which is our family role-playing game, uh, this is it. we just got the prototypes. I'm so excited. Um, this is our 100-card deck that you can use to build adventures on the fly for that game. Uh, we're doing a Kickstarter for that right now. These are these should be available um, by Christmas if you back the Kickstarter, and then they'll be available in the spring in stores. Um, and we have the MPC deck, which is... Do you want to talk about that a little bit? Uh, the MPC deck is um, basically a, a genre agnostic uh, thing that that will allow you, like like a lot of our other decks, um, you know, it's a, it's an aid for the GM. Um, you know, if you just need an NPC really quickly, you can draw them out. It'll have uh, a couple of different names depending on what genre you're talking about. It'll have, you know, a unique quirk for that person, uh, an appearance for that person, and and maybe, you know, some kind of special hook or something. Um, so it's it's really good for uh, on-the-fly uh, you know, needs that a game master has. You know, one of the things that we have really stressed with the cipher system a lot is... Uh, freeing up the GM um, from from a lot of painstaking preparation w ahead of time and the ability to sit down and just sort of create a story with the players, you know, as you're sitting there at the table. And so a lot of these kind of products that we're putting out are just tools that make things easier. They're, they're the kinds of things that I use just on my own anyway, and so we've just sort of turned them into products um, and I have two more. One is, if you're a fan of The Strange, the novel The Myth of the Maker will be out uh, uh, spring of next year as well. That has been written and is in editing. Um, again, we're doing a deluxe illustrated uh, hardcover book uh, from the Kickstarter, and then Angry Robot is also producing that uh, in game stores uh, or in bookstores around the country, and actually they're UK, so around the world. Um, and the last one, of course, is Invisible Sun, which is a ways off, but that's what Monty's currently working on, and so that's that's very much in our in our did, vision right now. Did we mention the asset deck? I don't think so. The asset deck not. is another one God, of these so uh, cool little things to help kind of the story move along. Just wanted to throw it out there um, because 
Mostly because it is, it's, it's actually quite different from the decks that we've done in the past because this one is very much a player-facing product. Um, the, the Game Master uh, has, this, has a deck of asset cards, and as you're playing, you know, for whatever reason, you know, maybe to reward some good role-playing or you know, because they bought you pizza or whatever, you can hand out a couple of these cards to players. And these, players, uh, these cards are cool because... Um, they they give the player just a tiny bit of narrative control over things. They are like, you know, oh, I just had some inspiration. Um, I just came up with the exact right thing to say in this conversation. I, uh, you know, just happened to have exactly the right, you know, type of screwdriver to fix this machine, right? Those kinds of things. Um, that uh, a player can sort of pull out, you know, use when they want to, when they feel the need to. And uh, it really kind of spices things up, I think, a little bit and makes things really interesting without, like, just upending the whole game and, and turning it into uh, something that is, you know, totally freeform or, 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 you know, with a total player narrative control. I think that's it, unless you want to get into the next year farther. <laughs> but those are kind of the things that we are, we are looking at coming out the next six months or so. Right, right. Yeah, there's there's a, a lot of stuff probably uh, that's kind of too far uh, out there that we don't want to uh, talk about yet. But we uh, we can talk a little bit about Invisible Sun just very briefly. Um, Invisible Sun is a brand new role playing game that we're going to be coming out with at the end of next year, basically about a year from now. And Invisible Sun, uh, without going uh, into too much depth, uh, is a game of surreal fantasy. It uh, is it 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 takes a couple of different uh, ideas and meshes them together um, from a from a gameplay standpoint. One of those is uh, basically the, the whole thing kind of wraps around the idea that it's hard to get your group together. It's hard to get uh, a group of us, you know, uh, adults together to play a game. So, number one, it really celebrates when we finally can do that. So, uh, the game itself is packaged with a lot of great. Um, useful things that you'll have right at the table to make the tabletop experience really fun. Uh, cards and tokens and things like that that are very tactile, um, uh, very visual, and uh, it meant to really enhance that, that experience. But also, the other thing, the other, the other sort of focus that it has with that same idea in mind is because we can't get all the whole group together as often as possible or as often as we'd like, one of the things that uh, Invisible Sun offers is the ability to create what we call uh, uh, development mode. We, 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 this is, this is in, as in character development. Um, and what development mode of your game does is it creates sort of the, the side scenes and the in-between scenes and even flashbacks that can occur with your character um, so that maybe just you and the game master get together not at the table, not with tons of stuff, probably not even with dice, uh, and... Uh, and, and work out something that happens along the side, something that happened in the past, whatever. You know, you can do this at the coffee shop, you know, in 15 minutes. You can do it via email or text, you know, if you can't get together. Um, you, it's, it's a very sort of casual side thing, but it is integrated into the actual game. And, uh, you know, if you, uh, when we did the Kickstarter, we did a, a video that kind of showed an example of that. Um, and it's, it's, it's off. Excuse me. It's often the example that I throw out there, right? In that, uh, you know, we see the players and they're all gathered around the table, and the session ends as they reach this this barrier that they don't know how to get across. They want to get to this this library, this magical library, but they they don't know how to get through this weird magical barrier. And uh, in between sessions, one of the players thinks to herself, you know, it's quite possible I've been here before. I did a lot of traveling with my mentor. And so uh, she comes to the Game Master, who's me in the video, and uh, we have sort of this flashback scene where, yes, indeed, she did go to this place 
once before. And, you know, because she was able to use her kind of uh, stealthy skills, she was able to spy on the, on her mentor who, you know, did the right things to get past this magical barrier so that the next time when the, the session starts, right, and we're, we're back up and running with the whole group around the table, she just uh, announces that she knows how to get through this barrier, right? And she solves the problem and, and, and play progresses. So it's, you can see how these things kind of mesh together, even when you are playing the game out of, uh, chronological order, basically, right? Uh, with, with flashbacks and stuff. And it's that kind of thing that, um, I think, makes it, it's it gives invisible sun the opportunity to have a lot of the narrative kinds of uh storytelling uh opportunities that we see all the time in fiction and you know in our in in you know, cool episodic television shows and and whatnot uh it, it allows us to kind of uh recreate that in a role-playing game way that uh that i that i don't know that there's a lot of uh, uh, anything like it out there, actually. So we're very excited about that. It's literally what I'm working on right now. Um, in the hotel. <laughs> in the hotel. Um, and uh, we're very excited about it. We're going to start playtesting here in a few months, and uh, it, it's going to be great. Are you going to playtest in any particular places or locations? Well, uh, so we've actually started playtesting... Um, what I call sort of the the alpha play test, which is just us, um, uh, you know, the 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 sort of the team in Seattle. Um, there will be a larger um, outside play test that'll start in we're hopefully December, maybe uh, around Christmas or New Year's, um, and. Uh, uh, well, so what we did was um, it was it was a part of the Kickstarter. Um, we also have beyond that uh, some people that we have sort of relied on a lot in the past. Um, but if you're interested, you can use the contact form uh, on MontecookGames.com, and uh, you know I. I I don't know all the ins and outs of how exactly uh, we're gonna we're gonna communicate with people because. Um, because I have people for that. <laughs> Can I jump in? Um, yeah. So right now, so if you didn't back the Invisible Sun Kickstarter and you're interested in playtesting, there is a level in the Kickstarter where you can pay to be part of the playtest. And our backer kit is still open, correct? So you can go, um, so we have backer right. kit. That's, so a, that's can, a way to ensure. So if you want to be part of the playtest, for sure you can go to backer kit and back at that level and you will definitely be included in the playtest. Right. I just got the uh, email, backer kit closes on the 17th of November. Thank you. So. <laughs> 17th, of November. 17th, so you have a little bit of time. Yeah. Can I, uh, can I actually kind of give it about this Kibbutz idea of kind of playing, playing kind of like, playing kind of like separate side scenes, like outside adventures. Mm -hmm. Something that, with like, none of like game, like, something that I kind of said didn't like, didn't like have separate kind of scene with just like one or two characters and, and the GM, so like kind of, just talking like before, or even like kind of, so I'm kind of like actually spend half flashback scenes with with the, with the GM. I hear about this kind of like actually kind that this isn't those things that that teenage did not have incentives for doing this, but it was something that I wanted to do because it actually kind of like really let me kind of bring out my character in the story. Yeah, well, we, we've definitely found that this is a great way to have interesting character development. And it's also one of the things that I love about it and that I'm really excited about is so from a game design point of view or a game master point of view, one of the things that you learn is that because role playing is a group activity, you you avoid um storylines that where where basically one person is involved or you're basically motivating one person because of course if that person is at the table and you're playing through their you know what the thing that they want to do the quest that they want to uh undertake you've got three or four other people sitting there at the table not doing anything and bored right and so we learned that that's the wrong thing to do but with development mode we can once again uh have sessions where you know we can have whole whole storylines right 
that uh, basically are involving one character. And in a, in a perfect world, what happens is is that that character starts sort of that storyline. We it's it's a uh, there's a mechanic in the game called a character arc, right? And everyone has at least one character arc kind of going at a time. And, and that's sort of your personal motivation. But it, um, it, it can suddenly sort of begin to branch into uh, the entire group. For example, uh, in some of the playtesting that we've done, um, one of the characters. Uh, so, so the genre of Invisible Sun, like I said, is, is a surreal fantasy. And so... Uh, everyone in the game uses magic in some way, um, but that doesn't mean that everyone's a D and D wizard, right? It, it's 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 a sort of very different thing than that. But um, one uh, a player characters these these people who use magic um, in the world they're called Vizle, and all Vizle one one of the things that's true about them uh, is that almost all Vizle anyway uh, have a house, and your house is an interesting extension of you. In fact, as your character. Advances, Advances, you know, in, in the same way that you can choose new abilities or, uh, you know, ad, ad, improve your stats or whatever, you can instead and use some of those options as you're moving up to actually improve your house, right? And so now you've got some kind of uh, defense system in your house that you've chosen so that the glass and the windows, if anyone tries to break in, suddenly, you know, liquefies and turns into tentacles and grabs them, right? Um, that's, that's, that's an option that you can have, you know, on your Vizlay house. And so, uh, in the playtest that we've been doing, um, because because another aspect of houses is that there's always something about your house that you don't fully know, right? You you kind of go into this thing knowing that there's going to be secrets to still uncover about your own house. And so uh, one player, Bruce, um, you know, found a door in his house one day that wasn't there before and did not know how to open it. And so kind of was doing side uh, scenes to try to figure out how to open this, figure out how to open this. And finally found out through research, talking to people that there was uh, this uh, spell that if he got a hold of it, he could cast it and probably open this door. But he knew that he couldn't do it on his own. So at that point, he came to the rest of the group. And so suddenly that character arc, that one thing that had been motivating just him, now motivates the entire group. And one of the things that really excites me as a game master from that point of view is all of this is entirely player driven, right? This isn't, this isn't other than saying, Oh, you found a door. Um, you know, there's no sort of GM nudging. There's no adventure hook, right? It's all the players sort of doing this on their own, deciding to help Bruce, um, you know, on their own and being motivated. (laughs) No, it worked out. It worked out. Anyway, uh, so that's Invisible Sun, or that's a, a tiny glimpse at Invisible Sun. Um, but uh, it is uh, almost 2.30. So why don't we uh, open it up and, and talk about what you guys want to talk about. Yeah. Oh, good. He's got a microphone. Uh, your beginner set. What age group is that? What, what, how young can you? Do you mean the beginner numerous? Yes. Or the yes. Sorry. Okay. Um, so, uh, you know, we don't have like an, uh, an age range, but I would say, um, you know, that a young teen, um, maybe, you know, 12 year old, that, that kind of age group would be fine. Numenera is not a particularly difficult game and, uh, and there's certainly no content really, you know, that's inappropriate. So what a, what a- would a uh, young teenager be able to do it on their own, or would this you still want something a little more, some a little more mature to help them run through that? Or would this be something you can set down in front of? Well, a you know, I started playing when I was ten, well, so <laughs> yeah. I mean, uh, I, I think I think they'd be I think they'd be just fine, right? There are um, uh, plenty of the the box is designed not only to teach players but but new GMs as well. So all of that is right in the box. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'll let you do it. <laughs> so um, when you're kind of talking about the side kind of arcs in Invisible Sun and kind of running players one-on-one, help, you know, guiding them through things that they want to do on their own, separate from the greater party. Right. Um, fr- from a GM perspective, it's really exciting. And I'm curious, from a game design perspective, 
what's kind of been the biggest challenge you found with having these side missions and trying to bring them back to the whole party and keep it just as exciting for everybody um, as it was for that one player? Um, well, a game design, I don't know if it was the biggest one, but a game design challenges is, uh, dealing with the idea that, you know, what if you've got a group where you've got, you know, one or two players who like want to be doing these side scenes all the time and you've got one person who just doesn't. Right. And, um, and, and because that's gotta be okay. Um, from the from the point of view of the game, but um, you know you don't want the other characters to advance way faster or or just become better, more improved characters than the others. So creating that balance and putting putting some safeguards on that is an interesting design challenge that I'm still kind of working on. Um, and uh, you know it it really is the the character arc concept which has has been an interesting challenge but one that I'm really happy with what what it comes out because what it means is is it, again it's all player driven right you decide my character is going to have this you, at the beginning you you're going to start with an arc right and it can be any of a number of different arcs that are sort of uh designed in a in a in a very general way that you then are uh, guided through to to make specific. So, for example, there's a revenge character arc, right? And so the way that works is, you know, you have you sort of fill in the blanks, almost Mad Libs style, right? Of like, you know, who you want to get revenge on and why and and whatnot. And then um, the character arc mechanic kind of guides you through the steps. And so the way that that works is, you know, you might have a few steps that are, you know, tracking down the the evildoer, right? And each one of those, you know, once you reach those milestones is going to earn you uh, what's called acumen, which is like XP in the game. And then, you know, every arc has a climax, or, or, or rather, not a climax, but a... Uh, uh, I can't remember the name. We'll say climax. Uh, but you know, a, a point where everything comes to head, right? You find the guy, you confront him. But we don't know exactly, you know, how that's going to come out, right? I mean, it's it's a game. It's not a story all by itself, right? And so maybe you find the guy and he gets away. Maybe he, you know, beats the crap out of you. Um, you know, that kind of thing. So. Um, there is another currency of experience points in Invisible Sun um, that is collectively called Crux, but Crux is divided into two components. One is called Joy, and one is called Despair. And so for you, in order to have a, a Crux to spend on various things, you need both a point of joy and a point of despair. Well, you know, if you f track this guy down and you get your revenge... Yay! Point of uh, point of joy, right? He gets away. Oh, point of despair, right? And so, uh, and there are different ways to earn joy and despair. But um, I really like having done a lot of fiction writing as well as game design. Uh, I, I really like the fusion of these two things because it is exactly the way uh, a fiction writer sort of tracks his characters' character arcs, right? With the step, step, step. Uh, the 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 sort of the Climax and then uh, a resolution, a day, denouement, and um, and you can have multiple character arcs going at once. And uh, but one of the one of the sort of uh, stop gaps of that is once you uh, uh, once you start, you get you you start with one for free, but after that you sort of pay XP to get in. Um, but the more uh, the more XP acumen that you pay at the beginning, the bigger the rewards. You're, it's it's like going to Vegas, right? Um, the more the more you ante in, um, the the more XP that you can earn out, assuming you uh, accomplish the the entire character arc. Anyway, um, that's that's I'm going on and on about it because that's what I'm working on right <laughs> now, right? And it's all in my head. Um, but uh, it. Uh, is something that's really exciting to me, and and uh, it, it's exciting because I've I've never worked with anything like this before, and I've never seen anything quite like this before. So, 
One of the great moments, too, is when those two, two unique character arcs start to cross. So here's the guy seeking revenge, and here's the guy seeking to save somebody who saved his life, and it turns out they're the same per people. And so then you have this great interaction of the characters. It's not always antagonistic, right? They don't always have different goals. Sometimes they have the same goals. But that opportunity for these unique character story arcs to kind of come together in a cool way is really exciting because the, the crux of gaming is making hard decisions as a character. And so that just sort of, you know, you've worked so hard and so long to get to this place, and now you have this really hard decision. And I love that moment. One of the things that is going to come in the Invisible Sunbox, in fact, is a separate book called The Guiding Hand, which is sort of half notebook, half uh, uh, sort of instruction guide. And it, it basically talks about exactly that. You, are, you, as the GM, are keeping track of what, uh, using it to keep track of what different character arcs your, your players are using, but then it also kind of guides you and suggests, hey, do you, you know, here's a way to mesh these two, or here's a good point in which to, to bring this into the whole group and, and whatnot. So uh, it, it's part record keeping, part kind of helping hand. Hey, um, I have a question about The Strange. Um, I thought World's Numberless and Strange was a really cool product. Um, and I guess... Could you guys talk maybe a little bit about what you think of things like that going forward? Like, there are so many options. There are big-ticket books that have recursions in them. There are glimmers. You have, you know, possible fan content. Like, how does the recursion verse, like, for lack of a better term, expand going forward with all those options? So, um... There's some exciting stuff coming up for the strange um, that I, I I can't uh, I can't fully talk about yet. But um, it we, <laughs> we promise recorded. we'll be good. Come good. on, come on. But uh, there, uh, you know, one of the things that I love about the strange is sort of the limitless uh, options and opportunities that it offers, um, and the very nature of the strange itself. Um, where you know, these these recursions are, are taking seed is that uh, you know it's always growing because uh, especially all of these ones that are, are from fictional bleed from our own world, right? I mean, you mentioned Stranger Things earlier, right? So you can imagine Stranger Things is this is this sort of brand new bit of fiction. So you can imagine that maybe a brand new recursion that would not be very big yet, right, has already developed in the Strange. But um, Stranger Things plays off of older tropes, right? And so maybe there's these weird connections between the Stranger Things recursion and, you know, some Stephen King-style recursion, right? Because they're playing off of each other. And, and uh, I, I love that aspect of it. Um, and, uh, and so, you know, that, that, that's something that we want to continue to explore. Um, Bruce's novel, which we did mention, do you know when that comes out? Uh, Myth of the Maker, I think, is April, March or April of next year. And uh, and that does a, a really fun. Uh, it, it's a really fun way to sort of explore the idea of of a recursion, a recursion's uh, creation and, and growth, right? Because it, it basically gives you the the story of how Arden became. Uh, uh, a recursion, and so um, you know, uh, there's no reason to think that you know we we're going to reach us an end point necessarily, <laughs> right? I mean, at least the the setting itself is not self limiting. But the first person who does a super meta game where they play the myth of the maker as a recursion gets <laughs> 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 super bonus points, and I want to hear all about it. <laughs> That's a good point. Was kind of wanted to go back to a creative question just about making, just like make my own tabletop RPG. <laughs> what secondly, what question count for? Just a strange. Uh, I wonder what would happen if, like, if you know, someone who like kind of like created an alternative like kind of like identity character for self, like you know, in the very very community game making a making a making a making for self. What would happen if that character type has way too too strange for? I was kind of thinking about like, what if like that that fact of doing that would kind of kind of cause that cause the the transfer to kind of transfer into the character that they've made. Is that possible? Sure, sure, right. <laughs> you can try um, anything. It, 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 
um, you know, anything that anything that's going to make a good story, uh, and and particularly something that's so character focused, I think I think would be great. So, I, I was wondering, uh, given that No Thank You Evil is for younger gamers, uh, how is the playtesting process for that game different, or is it different uh, yeah. than what you normally do? Um, yeah, so we um, when we playtested the original game, so if, if someone doesn't know, No Thank You Evil is our family game. Um, and we say family rather than kids, because one of our goals was... so. You know, we realized that most families don't have three five-year-olds, and so our goal with the game was to make it so that if you have a three-year-old, a five-year-old, and a seven-year-old, you can sit down and play the same game with kids of all ages. Um, and so our playtesting really looked at that. Uh, can we sit down with kids of a bunch of different ages? Um, and we also specifically called in our playtest for kids who were on, who had ADHD, who were on the autism spectrum, uh, who had Asperger's, um, all those kinds of things, because we really wanted to see if, you know, if I have a table of five children who all have unique things that they're dealing with, can a GM sort of work through and, and make that happen? Um, so it was very, very different because, um, well, first of all, playing with kids is so different because it just goes off the so fast um, and and also because they are um, kids are amazing storytellers inherently right they get the character they get the stories they're like let's go but then they're like wait there are rules that sucks <laughs> whereas I find that with adult players and playtesting stuff you're sometimes like no no I know you guys get the rules but let's try to role play let's try to do the character stuff um, and so for us it was really um, can can we can we make characters and adventures fast enough to keep their attention? My my sort of way of thinking about it is that I'm always competing with a puppy, and so if there's a puppy running around the table, and if I can keep the kids engaged anyway, then we're in a good place. We didn't always succeed, but we got really close. <laughs> Puppies are hard, um, and so we we really looked at that. We looked at can we keep their attention? Do they feel engaged? Um, so it was very different for me where we were looking at how simple can we make the rules and still have rules was kind of what we were thinking about. Do more for that? No, that, that covers it pretty nicely. Yeah. I am both of that, just, just saying this. As someone who was born on the awesome spectrum myself, please, please, keep, please keep making this project your And I would highly recommend it to like autism, autism society here, just mm. as you have a close support with that. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, I second that. My uh, my son's fifteen. He's autistic. So yeah, thanks for doing stuff like that. I appreciate it. Um, on another uh, tangent, is there a, what would you recommend as the best way to start writing for Cipher, getting yourself into that game design space, and uh, where can we go where we can actually show that stuff off without infringing on Monty Cook Games? Um, well, so to answer the second part first, um, we have a program uh, with DriveThruRPG called uh, the Cypher Creator, um, where you can, um, if you're familiar at all with uh, uh, Wizards of the Coast's uh, DMs Guild, where they uh, sort of uh, give people the ability to do their own D&D modules, um, they worked with, with drive-thru and then, uh, to create that drive-thru then came to us and said, would you like to do something similar? So it's, it's a very sort of similar kind of thing. Um, and, uh, I would say from a design point of view, uh, you know, when it comes to the cipher system, the most important thing is the story. And the second most important thing is the characters. And I hope that that's reflected in the system itself. And so once you start working with the system, um, you know, you'll see that, you know, the rules heavy parts of it, the heavy lifting uh, for the for the game system is all built right into the characters. Right. And so the characters are, are driving uh, the mechanics of the game. Um, the 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 other mechanics, right? The the mechanics that we have for non-player characters and creatures and stuff like that are just dirt simple. Um, they're just you know give something a level, maybe make one modification to that and go right. Uh, and then characters are are much more elaborate. You've got different pieces that you're fitting together with the cipher system, um, and so uh, that's. From a design point of view, that that's very intentional, and that is uh, it. Kind of goes along with the idea that you know at the table, the game master is not referencing a lot of rules, not relying on a lot of books and tables and charts and things like that, um, but is instead focused mostly on the story. And so, always, always, always with the cipher system, we're kind of 
keeping the, you know the the game master free from having a lot of of weight on their shoulders mechanically and uh you know that's why we don't have a ton of you know subsystems and you know heavy rules you know related like you know when we knew that we needed to create vehicle rules right we didn't want to get into sort of the really hyper realistic nitty gritty stuff uh we we wanted to keep it open and flowing so that the game master doesn't have a lot of of that stuff kind of weighing on him or her so that's that's what uh, that's that's where i go when i am sitting down to work with a cipher system is is just thinking about those two things right and um you know because once once you realize that you know you don't want to create a lot of new rules material unless it's character options, right? It's why we have two books for Numenera called character options and a book for the Strange called character options. Um, it you know that's where all you know if you want new mechanics, if you want new mechanical elements of the game, that's where you put them. Um, and I think that that I think that. At least for a certain type of player, that's exactly kind of the way they want it, right? Because a lot of that happens before you even sit down at the table. You know, you can tinker. Oh, I want to take this focus because, you know, at tier three, I get this cool ability and make those decisions before you get there. And then once you're actually at the table, it's it's pretty rules light. Yeah, and I think uh, Minor's sort of practical side, um, which is playtest, um, I think that playtesting is invaluable to getting responses. Um, and part of playtesting is really letting the player sort of break it and then kind of and then kind of seeing what what you want to do from there um, and like sort of going in with the understanding that they're going to break your game and that's okay. <laughs> um, and then um, having editors is really, really important, whether you're doing it um, for, you know, the Cypher uh, creator or yourself, I think. Um, and then for me, I, you know, because I come from a fiction background, when I started writing things like adventures, I had to go and look at other adventures and kind of break them apart and kind of see like, what is, what are the parts that work? What are the parts that don't? And then you would run it and you would say, okay, well, this is the part that, isn't on the page and I had to make up. And so you start to understand like what needs to be on the page for the GM. And so for me, it's been a lot of thinking. I've had to relearn how I think about writing to make sure that everything that the GM needs is there because the play, like if you're writing fiction, the readers don't need anything ahead of time, right? You sort of, the slow reveal is the way. When I first started writing adventures, Monty was like, um, you have to tell the GM these things because it would be like the last, ta-da! <laughs> um, so I think thinking about what the GM needs is um, super, super important. The other thing is we do have a website about fan use that tells you how you can publish stuff like on your own website um, and what and so how you can do fan use stuff without violating the copyrights and it's pretty liberal. I mean, we let you use some of our art and you know we say as long as it's not downloadable or an app you can post it on like you can do stuff on your blog and stuff like that. So um, so there's a lot of leeway if you're just looking to sort of get the you know get the experience and get the word out there as well. Um, over the last couple of years, what games or fiction have you guys been consuming that's been kind of like influencing your design space uh, or kind of bringing new ideas to that you hadn't thought of before? Um, well, uh, so, you know, lately I've been focused uh, pretty heavily on Invisible Sun, which is, you know, uh, a combination of finding the weirdest stuff that I can get my hands on and and consuming that as quickly as I can and uh, and sort of immersing myself in uh, in the real world occult um, the the interesting challenge for for invisible Sun is that it is this very heavily occult game but there's no real world occult to it so uh, you know invisible Sun has, all the elements that we're used to see, you know, you we're used to seeing with the occult, and, but 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 all of it is new. So there isn't a tarot deck, but there is a tarot-like deck of cards called the Sooth deck, um, and uh, there there isn't a sort of a, an astrological. Uh, idea with astrological signs and whatnot, but there is this concept called your secret soul, which uh, you know there are only thirteen different secret souls, and so everyone has sort of their own secret soul, but 
you know, if two people share a secret soul, they, they share some commonalities. But of course, it's secret, so it's really difficult to find those people. Um, that, that's actually a big part of the game. Um, but anyway, uh, there's just all these different elements. And then, you know, uh, one of the things that I find fascinating, one of the things that I, that I love um, in reading about stuff like that is, is just how, you know, because it's been around for so long, um, it, it's all so intertwined and interconnected, right? And so you've got people who are writing about uh, the Kabbalistic tree of life, but how that interacts with uh, astrology and how it interacts with the tarot and stuff like that. So I want to make sure that that also is true in Invisible Sun, how it's all interwoven and, and complex. And um, I like creating settings that are sort of, as deep as the players and the game master want to go, right? So if you want to just kind of do sort of surface stuff, you know, you can play Numenera, for example, that, it, you know, just kind of wacky far future hijinks, right? And and not really sort of, uh, you know, delve too deeply into it. But if you want to delve deeply into it, I think, I hope, that there is a lot of stuff there that you can really kind of... Uh, uh, get into a lot of world building kinds of things, um, and so anyway, that's I'm really getting off on a tangent. But anyway, that's that's the kind of stuff that I've I've mostly been reading. Um, so I've, I'm in a weird place right now because I just finished a Numenera novel, and I'm working on an adventure for Shadow of the Demon Lord, which if you guys know anything about this, is super deep dark. I just I'm working on something for No Thank You Evil, which is called Uh Oh Monsters. <laughs> which sounds just like it, it sounds. Um, and of course, I'm working on Predation, which is a time travel dinosaur book. So to say that my reading is eclectic <laughs> is sort of an understatement. But um, the things that I have been loving is I do read a lot of nonfiction. So I have a huge stack of dinosaur books. I have a huge stack of like far future DNA, time travel, you know, uh, very, very science heavy, um, which is mostly for inspiration because I read through it and I go, oh, I'm going to steal this and break it apart and use it for this other thing. Um, I also really like books of like symbols or books of animals and mythology. And so I, I have a lot of those on my desk for reference to just sort of open and be like, oh, this is what a tree means and all these different things. And, and I like these ideas. Um, the best fiction that I have read this year is The Library at Mount Char, which I highly, highly recommend. It's super beautiful. It actually reminds me a little bit of Invisible Sun in that there's some cool surreality to it. Um, I'm reading Monstrous right now, which is a comic that I just that I super love. Uh, I'm a big comic reader too, so there's I take a lot of inspiration from that. Um, and also the magazine Nautilus, which if you guys don't recommend, actually was a gift from a player, and I'm so grateful that she introduced us to it because we love it. It's a quarterly publication that focuses on science and literature, which of course is you know hello, um, and and it always has different themes, and it's just super glorious. Um, I think that's kind of, I also take a lot of inspiration, I know this isn't what you asked, but I take a lot of inspiration from music and movies and currently TV. TV is just so fantastic. Um, and so my, I, I, I listen to a ton of different music to sort of inspire me. Right now we're watching Westworld, which is such a great, super inspiration. Um, and I, we are, we're sort of delighted to be here, but sad that we're missing the Doctor Strange premiere as well. So, <laughs> um, so that's my list. I often take pictures of the books that are like on my desk and stuff to kind of show people. And so if you follow me on Twitter too, you can sometimes just sort of see the, the range of things that I am currently have my nose in. So. Go ahead. Uh, um, I find that, but I find it fine as ハハハハハハハハハハハハハハハハハハハハハハハハハハハハハハハハハハハハハハハハハハハハハハハハハハハハハハハハハハハハハハハハハハハハハハハハハハハハハハハハハハハハハハハハハハハハハハハハハハハ
Cool. That's awesome. I, and actually kind of like, kind of like found like a found a world that I, I can really kind of like take myself deeply into. I think, I, I, at least I hope that the strange is definitely something that, that is, is something you can dig pretty deep into. You know, with all the different possibilities of, you know, you can, you know, there are people out there who, you know, were playing uh, their homebrew D&D game for a very long time, and then they got the strange, and that suddenly their homebrew D&D world became a recursion that their characters could then go visit as people, you know, from Earth, exploring, you know, a world that they, as players, already knew all about, but were exploring it, you know, from a, from a third-person perspective. Yeah, yeah I would say, yeah, if... I would actually kind of, I actually kind of would thought about doing this because, like, if I'm not playing, like, a game, not playing a game that's in my Impulse RPG, I would want to play a game of Strange where the world of my Impulse RPG would be because. Very cool. Um, so you kind of talked about predation and all the science reading that you're doing right now. Uh, how do you decide how much, like, science to bring into a game like Predation and then how much like science fiction to bring into a game like Predation you know how, how do you like make those design decisions as you're working on a game like that well Predation is, is pretty interesting because Monty came to me and said hey if you could write any game setting what would it be and I said dinosaurs and then I said but I don't really want to write about dinosaurs I want to be able to write about dinosaurs plus <laughs> and so that's where the time travel part came in and so Predation is actually set in the future when time travel is a thing but those people time travel back to the Cretaceous period um, and they've now been stuck there for a hundred years which means that the people who originally traveled back are, are dying out and so your players are actually probably the, the descendants of those time travelers. Um, and so the cool thing about that for me is I can look at all the all the information that we know about dinosaurs right now. And like as I'm writing this game, every, it's like every day some new information comes out. Oh, not only do they have feathers, but they hum. They don't actually roar. Like all of these cool things that, you know, some, they just discovered what they think is a fossilized dinosaur brain for the first time. And so I feel... I'm in this crazy place of writing where the, the technology and the science keeps changing. But for me, the really cool thing is that because time travel doesn't happen until at least 100 years from now, as we are, think of all the things that we will have discovered in 100 years about dinosaurs. There will be new dinosaurs. We'll have all kinds of cool additional sort of fossil discoveries. We'll have discovered new things. Um, we'll have more DNAs. And so I'm able to take everything that we know as science right now and imagine what a hundred years of additional science and scientific discoveries will do for dinosaurs. And that's, for me, very exciting. Um, and so I really start with a science base. We're working hard to have the art be sort of accurate in terms of what we know about feathers and coloration and frills and, and all sizes and all of this other stuff. Um, but then we also get to, to tweak it one more time. Because 100 years in the future, we will have cybernetics and robotics and DNA, uh, you know, information storage. And so all of that technology will have come back into the Cretaceous period, which means that in 100 years, they will have bioengineered dinosaurs. There will be cybernetic dinosaurs. There will be dinosaurs with lasers in their mouths and laser eyes. And so, <laughs> like, I mean, and so, so I'm able to really start from this base of science and then just kind of run wild with it. Um, and so the, it, it, there's this really cool thing when they talk about dinosaurs, which is sort of this idea that there are things that we know for sure, and then there are things that we can extrapolate. And so what you know, the things that we know for sure are things that we can tell from skeletons, but we can extrapolate that dinosaurs probably went into caves and licked the minerals off the cave ceilings because that is what dinosaur-like animals do now. And so there's these extrapolations that we can make about science that make sense even though there's no proof. And so I'm working really hard to have those kinds of things that really make a lot of sense um, but we haven't proven yet because I figure in a hundred years we will prove it, and even if we don't, by then nobody's going to be playing predation, so they won't know. <laughs> um, so I, I, I'm, I really love the science, and then I love really the opportunity to break it apart. Um, so in a lot of ways, this is kind of the perfect uh, opportunity for me to do that. So I got all excited there. <laughs> to, to move from influences to recommendations. Are there any games that you enjoy that are non-Monty Cook games that you think haven't got as much attention as they deserve in the gaming space? Wow, that's, that's an that interesting question. That is a great question. question. Give me one second, because I have some. Oh, God, I'm, but I'm horrible with names. Um, so uh, there's a game that is... 
It is primarily a, a miniatures uh, sort of combat game, but it has really heavy role-playing elements called Kingdom Death, uh, which uh, and it has these beautifully gory and grotesque miniatures of things that you can fight and whatnot. Um, and, uh, and the nice thing, you know, you, you buy it, it's this big expensive box, but then, but you get everything, right? You have all the miniatures are in there, all the rules and cards and everything. Um, so I am, I'm a fan of that. Um, I'm, I'm anxious to get a kingdom death game going. Um, and, uh, uh, I think that that would be really cool. Um, what do you got? So I was thinking about, what's is it the fall, the one that scrolls on the scroll? The fall of magic. The fall of magic, which is yeah, this fantastic a- like story-based game that is, is, is really outside my comfort zone, and that's part of the reason I like it. Um, I don't like the attention on me, and this is a, a thing where like everyone has to have their attention on you for a, a strong period of time. Um, but it's really beautifully made. It's beautifully done. It's um, by someone who's local to us near Seattle, um, they did a Kickstarter for it, but I don't think it's gotten a ton of attention out there. But the whole game is you you have a, you have this scroll that has a fantasy map on it, and basically you're unrolling the scroll to show the progress of the game. And the, and then it flips over, and there's a whole part of the world on the other side, and yeah, it's super beautiful. It's a scroll. It is. Yeah, it's a it's real a scroll. linen scroll. <laughs> it's yeah, it's so beautiful. Um, the fall of magic. The fall of magic. Um, <laughs> no, but it's different every time because of the mechanics. The mechanics are sort of this beautiful, elegant thing, um, and you play different characters, and you have a token, and um, so so like Monty was talking about with uh, with cyber system stuff being character driven, it's super character driven, and so the story is utterly different every time you play it, um, and that's kind of amazing. Like I want to sort of break that apart and figure out how that works because it's pretty cool. It's like a choose your own adventure with infinite choices, which is awesome. Um, I also, this is actually a, a, a computer slash iPad game. I don't know if that counts, but it's called The Frost. And it's, it's, but it's a card game that's on the iPad that I absolutely adore. It's sort of like a survival game. You're walking through the frost and trying to survive. And I don't know, it's just one of those things that I pick up, you know, when I've, like, I've been writing for three hours and I need a break. And it's just, it's this really, um, I've heard people who hate the art style, but I love it. It's just this really kind of cool and calming. Like, it's all white. And you just hear your feet crunching through the frost. And then you die. <laughs> Uh, what else? <laughs> That's awesome. Well, you know, if we're going to... This is why I don't get to be the salesperson. <laughs> if we're going to include, like, video games and computer games, there's this really obscure little console game that I've been preoccupied with for almost a year now called Fallout 4. <laughs> <laughs> no, really, I've sunk that. a lot of time in Fallout 4. <laughs> um, what was... We, we just played a board game recently. And I just restarted Skyrim yeah. 2, yeah. yeah. We're, we're showing our weaknesses. Or is that just, or are you not doing anything? Or are you just playing on the console? Not I'm playing on console. Yeah. Well, you know that objective was there, and I actually can't, I'm actually after that for the scholarship. Oh, cool. It's updated for the special edition, too. Oh, okay. I was trying to think that, well, I, I was thinking about evolution, but I don't know how hidden that is. But that's lovely. Um, there's a board game called Evolution that probably most people know about. I don't know. It's hard for me to tell how, how many people, you know, what's sort of hidden hidden gem, but Evolution's really lovely. Um, I can't think of anything else that doesn't, that isn't sort of out there already. Right. I mean, you know, we play, we've been playing a lot of Pandemic lately, but yeah. everyone knows about <laughs> Pandemic. Um, and So uh, you, the two of you have obviously been doing this professionally for quite a long time now. Uh, I'm Kind of wondering what your, you know, day-to-day or, like, weekly creative process is like. Like, how much time are you sitting at a desk working, thinking of things? How much time is, you know, playing games with people, you know, playing Fallout 4, breaking, <laughs> breaking down your, your, your free time or your professional time? That's a, that's a really interesting question. Um, well... You know, if you were to take everything that's game-related out of my life, there wouldn't be very much left. <laughs> um, you know, because it's, it is what I do in my free time as well as my work time. Um, uh, but we we have a, a, a weekly Numenera game, and then uh, uh, our company, uh, Montecook Games, there's eight of us full-time now, and 
we are not all located. We're, we're, we live in Seattle, but we're not all in Seattle. And so uh, we do a lot of all our meetings, for example, are all, you know, virtual. And um, we do uh, we try to get in two games a month with that just for, as a team building exercise. So that's uh, a, another sort of role playing game outlet where we, we really kind of just explore weird, weird ideas. Um, just kind of goofy one-offs of, of things. Um, but as far as like on a day-to-day basis, you know, we are, we, uh, Shauna and I are the, the co-owners of the company. And so there's, there's a lot of administrative stuff that needs to be done. And, you know, a lot of the, the sort of not fun aspects of putting games out, you know, dealing with print runs and distributors and things like that. Um, but to be really honest, most of that rests on the shoulders of, uh, uh, our COO, Charles Ryan, which frees up Shauna and I uh, to do a lot more of the creative work, um, which is a really interesting place uh, to just diver- diverge for a second. Um, you know, I've worked for a lot of different game companies and whatnot, and uh, there is this I- there is this idea that, you know, you sort of have the business people in charge and the creative people work for the business people and one of the things that I love about our company is that it's it's upside down that way right it's the creative you know Shauna and I are, are sort of in charge and so that means everything that we do is is creative driven rather than business driven so you know even if we find that you know oh this particular kind of product sells really well right um, you know if it's not something that is creatively interesting to us we probably aren't going to do it right we're much more much more interested in in the sort of uh, the things that inspire us and create and 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 uh, you know make it fun for us because you know, frankly, there are probably, you know, if we were just interested in money, there are better ways to make like money. Other um, businesses, but, other, uh, other industries. <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh, absolutely. Absolutely. No, no shareholders. Um, so uh, that, that means that, uh, you know, I'll, I guess I'll speak for myself, but I probably spend about five hours a day um, uh, just purely on creative work. Um, which enables me to have a pretty a pretty steady output, and uh, and then of course we have uh, a couple of you know we have Bruce Cordell who is is uh, one of our designers who you know that, that that is his entire job, and so he's he's also got a really really uh, steady output of material. Um, I I keep I keep really weird hours. Um, so when I say five hours a day, what I really probably mean is five hours a night. Um, but uh, I keep less weird hours. I'm a morning person, not to talk to people or be functional, but to sit and think about deep thoughts. <laughs> so so woe to whoever tries to talk to me in the morning because that's kind of a bad space. Um, but so I try to get up. Um, I try to get like two hours of work in, um, and then I walk the dog, and then I come back and try to get three or four hours of work in. Um, the, on an ideal day, uh, that's all creative, but most of the time that doesn't happen, right? Because we have meetings and we have, like Monty, Monty said, administrative stuff or things that, you know, crisis that arrive and you're just like, ah. Um, and then I often go back to work. Um, Monty often starts work around 9 or 10, and so I often go back to work at, from like 9 to 11 and do email-y type things or, or, you know, those sort of things that don't require as much deep thinking. Um, but we travel a lot, which means that my schedule is often more like work three hours, get on a plane, try to work for two hours, land somewhere, you know, write an adventure between panels. Um, so that's kind of, that's being able to be flexible is a really important part for me of, of living a creative life. Cause there was a time when I was like, I can't write unless I have everything around me and I have five hours and nothing's going to impede on me and I can just sink into this. And, and very quickly I learned that that was not a way to be productive because I never had that. <laughs> so, so I've learned to kind of write anywhere and anyway, but my ideal would be just a day alone in the house for six or seven hours. Cause I like to putter too. I like to write for a couple hours and then read something or pick up a game for a little bit or, you know, go back to that. Um, but my, my, my process is very re- reward-driven. Um, so I'm like, if I do these many pages, I can have a mocha. If I do this many pages, I can play Fallout. If I do this many pages. Um, so that's kind of my process in terms of writing. 
Um, and I also have a treadmill desk because writing is very, very sedentary and I sit on my butt a lot. Um, and so my treadmill desk is where I play games because I've learned I can't write on it. And so I, that's often a reward. If I write for if I write 4,000 words, I can get up and play whatever new game I'm excited about on the treadmill desk. So it's, that's, a, that's sort of, that makes me sound like I'm absolutely scattered and crazy, but I'm actually really productive in that, inside that bubble. I think that scattering, though, is that at least for us is important. You know, we we were just talking with John Kavalik, who uh, has uh, a studio where he does all of his work um, away from his home and like keeps sort of regular business hours there. And that would never work for me um, because it's it's too valuable to me to be able to to vary up my day. I mean, there there will be days when I just don't have the words in me and um you know i'll I'll never end up putting a word on a page but i will i will be productive in other ways um there are there are days where i'll be you know sitting uh watching a television show or something and and have an idea and, and have to run to my computer and 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 write up that character ability or whatever it is and so the fact i mean it is it is probably a truer thing to say that we live at work <laughs> rather than we work at home but um it, it that works for us I guess actually I have a question it was back to it was actually back to what you said earlier you mentioned uh, books you had as kind of in, uh, inspiring material and a book of icons and then you said you had this really beautiful book that was and I I, I didn't catch the name of it. It was you said it was full of like, um, like um, symbols and, and that sort. Of. Yeah, you know, I ha- so I have a, a a book of symbols and a book that's um, sort of more etymology type stuff, and I don't remember either of the names, unfortunately. <laughs> and I was trying to imagine because I just took a picture of them and put them on Twitter like a couple days ago, and I was like, can I remember the the title by looking at the spine in my head? No, I can't. Um, but there's lots of them out there, and so um, so I often flip through and kind of find the ones with the coolest images yeah. that sort of appeal to me. And um, and you know I I'm not the kind of person who often sort of writes in a book and stuff, but in those I will with pencil because I feel like I I, I want to make notes and keep things. Um, and so yeah, I'm I'm sorry that I don't remember the name. <laughs> yeah, feel free, feel free. I can take a picture and send you the the stack of right. <laughs> stack of them. Anything else? Cool. Well, thanks very much yeah. for coming, guys. I have um, the prototype of, of um, Story, Please, if anybody has kids that want to come up and see it. And uh, that's it. Yeah. yeah. Cool. Thanks, you guys. Thank you so have much. Have a great for rest of your con.